Good morning, everybody. Do me a favor and flip open to Luke chapter 4. And while you're flipping there, we're going to have to do a little bit of a game of catch-up because the last couple weeks we did like a whole Old Testament recap. And then Adam decided to do like this big Jesus cosmology, lots of ology words. Uh, And now all of a sudden we're in Luke chapter 4. So to get from there to here really quickly, uh, Jesus was born. All of Christmas happened. Uh, your nativity sets are wrong because the wise men weren't there, yada, 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 the whole, the whole spiel. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens, like John the Baptist comes on the scene, and the spirit of Elijah prepares the way. Uh, Jesus strolls along, calls a couple of the disciples. I know there's a lot of big important things, but we're just going to have to just get there. Hang on. And uh, calls a couple of the disciples, and then they come and they see him get baptized. And there's this big epic moment where one of the very few times in history or you have the entire Trinity showing up in one moment because Jesus is there. He gets dunked, pops back up, and the moment he does, a light comes from heaven. The Father speaks while the Spirit is manifest over Jesus in the waters. And it's this big deal. And a bunch of people see it, and then all of a sudden, we're here, where this big epic thing happens. Jesus says, all right, you, you, come follow me. Watch the Trinity show up, even though you don't know what that means yet. And now go over there for a while, because I got to go in the woods to be in a van down by the river. No, not that. (laughs) Not that. Uh, But that's basically where we're at, is that this big epic thing happens in the plot line, and then all of a sudden everything just dramatically comes to a halt because Jesus tells the people that he's called so far to wait for over a month on me. So it says, starting here at Luke chapter 4, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, so after his baptism, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And so he has this moment where the Spirit calls him to prep himself a bit more for his public ministry, where he then just starts out and out preaching. We haven't gotten there yet, but he's in this season of preparation. He's going to take a time of prayer and fasting, something that he's marking off as sacred between him and God, just to prep for this very long ministry that's just back-to-back stuff for three straight years. And in that time, it says, in those 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when the days were ended, he was hungry. Obviously. He's been fasting for 40 days. And in that moment, the devil said to him, If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil took him up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only shall you serve him. 
And then the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil ended every temptation. And he departed from him until an opportune time. And then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all of the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so we have this really intriguing interplay back and forth here between Jesus and the devil. Where the devil will kind of dangle something in front of Jesus and they just have a little bit of back and forth. And it slowly just sort of escalates. And every time that, you know, one makes a move, the other one makes a move. It's a little game of chess here. Because every time Jesus does a reply, the devil goes, okay. And kind of meets his reply a little bit. If we go back and look at it, the first thing he does is he looks at this moment of Jesus' human weakness. You're in this moment of sacredness. And you're weak. Because you've made yourself weak for God. Maybe that's a good time to slip in. And he says, go. And now our translations will usually say, if you're the son of God. And a bunch of Greek scholar people who are way smarter than me, because Greek is an endless game of, I don't understand, but they do somehow, will actually say maybe it might be a little bit better to translate it as since you are the son of God. Because at no point in the Bible do Satan or any of the demons ever question who Jesus actually is. I mean, all throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus casts out a demon, they all say, I know exactly who you are. And he says, be quiet and be gone. And they listen. So it might actually be a little bit better of a thing to say, since you are the son of God. And he tempts him with something very normal, very natural. If you haven't eaten, I mean, this is a room full of Baptists. I know y'all, y'all get hangry between 8 a.m. and 12.30 today, right? So not eating for 40 days. He tempts him with something very normal, very mundane. Turn the rocks to bread. And he says, no. Because I can live not just off of bread, but the word of God. And you see this pattern keep going where he says, okay, well, I'm going to show you in this moment of vision. He shows him every kingdom of the world and says, God, all the way back in Deuteronomy. It's been a minute since we've been there. But there was this moment all the way back in Deuteronomy where all these spiritual beings were given this dominion over all the stuff that Jesus is looking at until an appointed time. And Satan is saying, I still have control over all this because the time isn't here. But if you bow down, I'll let you have it. And Jesus says, no, I worship God. And then finally, he tempts him with something else that we would very understandably want, which is a sense of security. He says, well, since you're the son of God, obviously God will protect you. Why don't you just take a little hop off the roof here? The temple's high. 
I don't have a picture of it for you, but the temple sits on a hill, and if you stand on the very top of it and you were to just do a little hopscotch right off the edge, nothing good is going to happen to you. But this is clearly the Son of God. So why don't you just go on ahead and show to everybody what's up here, and that'll be good. What's, what's the harm in that? So we've gone from, okay, maybe you're weak in your physical needs. No, you trust God there. Maybe you don't necessarily trust God's plan for you. Because understand, God's whole plan is to already give Jesus dominion over all this stuff anyways. He says, I'll give you all authority. He already knows God is planning to give him all authority. So do you trust God's plan and timing? Yes. And then we move into, all right, well, since you trust God's plan and timing, do you actually trust his provision for you? So since you know he has a plan, do you trust him to get you from point A to point B safely? And he says, yes, I do. And these are all very normal, very common, understandable things for all of us. We all want our physical needs met. All of us want to be able to know and have some sense of knowledge that God has a definitive plan for me and that I can trust that. And then all of us want to be able to know that whenever God moves me through his plan, hopefully there's not a whole bunch of pain involved. Like there's going to be some, we expect it, but maybe as little as possible, like not taking a tumble off a roof somewhere. And so in category, we can all kind of understand these things, but then Jesus has an extra layer of temptation in there that we can't necessarily relate to. Because like Adam was talking about last time when I recovered all this incarnation cosmology stuff, uh, the very point of Jesus' ministry was to empty himself. Philippians tells us that he never considered his deity as something to be grasped. At no point did he lord or flaunt it over people. He constantly served people. And because he never tangibly grasped his authority to lord it over people, that then makes him lord later. And so this whole time, the devil is actually trying to get Jesus to do these little tiny things to just maybe grasp onto his divinity. There's nothing wrong with eating bread when you're hungry. The fast was over. It said when the fast had ended, he then tempted him with food. But it wasn't just that he tempted him with food. He said, turn the rock into food because you can. And Jesus says, no. Not because there's anything wrong with a guy who has the capacity to feed himself to feed himself, but because Jesus says, I'm not going to grasp onto that divinity. This is my calling to empty myself, to be a man. And then he says, okay, well, human men rule over things by bowing to some sort of deity. See all these other kings, they rule over things by bowing to all those other powers and spiritual beings that I control. Be a man. Take your kingdoms. And he says, no, I'm not going to grasp the deity yet. And the same thing then at the end of the plan it's the same thing that the people mocking Jesus tell him on the cross. They say, well, if you're the son of God, why don't you have the angels come down and defend you? And Jesus says, I could, but this is where I'm supposed to be. So in all of this, there's an extra layer of temptation. There's this whole spiritual warfare. I mean, obviously the devil tempting you is spiritual warfare, but there's a whole new level that we can't even necessarily relate to because all of it is the devil just trying to get Jesus to 
to just grab back hold of the deity. Show me who you are and mess up the plan. And Jesus says no every time. Because all of us, I mean, at least the vast bulk of us, being churchy folk, have a very easy time of understanding Jesus is God. We see him in stained glass where it looks nice and pretty. Like, I mean, I, obviously I'm here. I am not necessarily in the, what we call the high church flavor, where you walk into big steeples and these towering chapels and they're stained glass. And if you sneeze in the room, they're going to hear it around the corner. I mean, like just these epic temples, but they're beautiful. If you ever walk into these cathedrals and places with the stained glass and you see all these pictures of Jesus everywhere, these heavenly things, it just gives you this sense of awe and wonder. And, you know, we have all these epic depictions of Jesus. Like if you, if you can somehow watch The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe or read the book or, you know, see these scenes and like these allegorical things for Jesus of like Aragorn coming out of the place of the dead to be the king and all this stuff, when we get these epic kind of pictures... And it's really, really hard for us to understand Jesus is a man. And so when we come to the temptation of Jesus, it's, there's this really, really deep like, temptation for us to just look at it. And I mean, and I'm not knocking the kinds of sermons that use this as an outline to help you kind of foresee the kinds of temptation that the enemy might throw at you and try to give you helpful, tangible steps, right? You know, like, like the four or five steps to help you with temptation. If you are like a type A person and lists of practical stuff help you, awesome. But all at the same time, we need this moment to understand just how much Jesus is emptying himself setting aside all of his deity to be like you and me. And maybe his temptation isn't necessarily to give us five easy steps on how to avoid being tempted in the future or how to overcome temptation. I mean, it's there. The, the secret to the whole thing is in there. It says Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, and then he leaves the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. The answer to avoiding temptation is clearly there. It's the Holy Spirit. But even if we look at this as like the five easy steps to overcoming temptation or what have you, there's still this sort of like lingering thing in our, in our gut and in our chest of like, oh, what does that have to do with me? I, he's Jesus. He's God. Clearly, he's not going to be tempted. So good on you, Jesus. You went into the desert. You overcame things, walked back out, still being you, still being God. And, you know, lot de da what does that have to do with me and my crud and my junk? And you, I don't feel like this is the same thing of him being tempted when he's God and me being tempted whenever I'm just not. And so we have this sense of disconnect, but don't let that happen. Because this isn't about Jesus being God. This is about Jesus being just like you and me. 
If you don't believe me, I'm going to flip over. You don't have to follow me. This is going to be touch and go. I'm going to be like shotgunning a whole bunch of stuff from Hebrews at you. But just listen, lean into me and listen here. Because why, why was Jesus tempted? He's sinless. He's perfect. What's the point of tempting him? It's so he can actually be like us. Because it says this in Hebrews chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of that flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And a little bit later here in chapter 4, at verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are. And yet, Without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus wasn't just tempted to make some sort of point to you. Jesus was tempted in order to be like you. And me and everybody else. Because in parts, all throughout Hebrews here, the author goes on to explain that Jesus' temptation now puts him in the position, his humanness. The fact that he felt hunger and sadness and at times just deep depression. John tells us that Jesus openly weeps with people who are mourning. He felt all of these things. We see Jesus get angry. We see him get tired. There's a point in the Gospels where it says he was very tired and very hungry, probably looking fairly gaunt because he's a guy who walks everywhere in the heat and he's ministering to people and his family, his biological family, and the disciples are saying, you have got to stop and eat something. And he says, I, I can't. I, they need my help. This is a human being. Just like us. Because if we remember all the way back when yonder, whenever I either enlightened you or bored you to tears about Leviticus, we talked about how there were priests who served as mediaries between the people and God. And their whole function was to help you be ritually cleansed so you could come into the camp, 
and be in God's presence and dwell with him and help give you these ritual cleansings so you can stay here for a little while longer yet. We're going to have to do it all over again next week, but we'll worry about that next week. For now, you can be in the camp. And all throughout Hebrews, the author weaves this big, long explanation for as to why Jesus is now suddenly in this priestly position that's better than the previous generation before. In chapter 6 in Hebrews, it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, becoming a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so we're going to go way back to the beginning of the year whenever we were reading. And... Abraham's just sort of walking around doing his thing. And all of a sudden he stumbles upon this guy named Melchizedek who shows up out of nowhere in the Bible. And just as quickly as he appears, he's gone. And he's a weird guy because not only is he the king of Salem, he's also the high priest of Salem, which is not the normal combination. But I don't, I don't know. Maybe they had inflation too and they were short-staffed. But the guy is there serving both roles <laughs> And he blesses Abraham and his family. And Abraham, for some reason, feels the need to give him a tenth of what he had. And then they go. And we never hear anything else about Melchizedek. So the author suggests that maybe just in the same way that we never hear of Melchizedek's priestly line ending, like all of the other priests did in the rest of the Old Testament, that maybe now Jesus is in this new class or order of priests where the coverage of sin and the line never ends. And the thing is about priests, you have to be human to be a priest. Angels, God and deity that doesn't show up to serve as the priest, but rather a man shows up to share our burden, to feel our pain, to be like us. It says to be tempted in every single respect. And then he comes to be a mediator for us. In chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession through them. So in the same way that we never hear of Melchizedek dying, Jesus does not die. And his priestly coverage goes on forever for his people. The author keeps weaving this thread all throughout the book to then talk about how Jesus in his priestly function then makes a sacrifice and not continual sacrifices over and over and over again for you to dwell in the camp of God. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, so the veil, that is, through his flesh, 
Since we have a priest over the whole house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have, we have to understand if Jesus successfully does what we think he did, which is come here to live the life of a man, to serve as a priest in order that his crucifixion could actually mean something. If just some random schmuck off the sidewalk kills a lamb on the sidewalk, it doesn't mean anything as far as atonement. He's just a dude making a mess on the sidewalk. If a priest comes in to a holy place and then makes that sacrifice, now all of a the sudden there's coverage, there's atonement. And if we actually think Jesus did what he, he did in that moment of sacrifice, he has to be a man. He has to be human. And I keep stressing this and emphasizing this because it's so, it is, it's hard for us to try to grasp onto the concept of God actually getting us and knowing what it's like to feel this way, to feel the flesh, the blood, the aches, the pains. You know, I mean, it, it's, I've never really considered God might know what it, it's like to have a trick knee. But he knows. But he knows. And I say all that to say because, because whenever we get temptation, whenever we feel tempted, and particularly if, if we fail and we succumb to temptation, Everybody's immediate instinct in the face of failure is typically to find some sort of way to recoil. It's like there is a muscle that you have to build up over years to have this certain kind of integrity that whenever a screw up happens and it's clearly your fault to just bite that bullet. Not a whole lot of people can successfully do it. And if they do it, not many do it gracefully. They like to go down kicking and screaming. Oh, we, the worst thing is that we try to hide. And we see it all the way back in the very beginning. Whenever Adam and Eve were tempted, and then they fail, the first thing they want to do is hide. Because they understand that there was a rule. They, they, I mean, they know God. They've walked with God. They understand this is God. I mean, Adam understands this is God. He was given his job by God. God put him to sleep, and then he wakes up, and there's just a whole other person there. Adam knows who God is. They hide. And if we understand who God is, it's the impulse to hide is very natural. We just got done reading through all the prophets where it talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then their teeth will be in their bones, will be ground to powder, and this and that and the other thing. Like, if, if you understand who God is, the impulse to want to recoil and hide is understandable. We see it every day in children when they break a rule, 
you got, they're not coming to you. got to go find them. I mean, I hid when I broke rules. My parents aren't here to confirm it, but if they're watching somewhere, they're sitting there in High Point, Missouri going, yep. You, got, you have to go look for them and find them whenever they do something wrong. And that's then moves us, once we fail, okay, so now we're already in one bad place because we've already transgressed and then we're in this position of now I need to cower and now I need to hide and then we end up in a worse place because then if we don't get caught or if we feel like we don't get caught, then we start doing more and more stuff to cover up that and then it just becomes this never-ending like death roll. You're just doing the crocodile death roll all the way down until you wind up in this lonely pit where all you're doing is trying to hide from God because or others because he's holy and then you feel like I I don't want to be around church people because either you get upset and resentful because you know you have something you're not sharing with them, or maybe you just feel guilty, so guilty. You're like, I can't be my true self with them because I'm hiding things. And so I just have to recoil. And then I back away from being around other believers. I back away from the body because they're not going to get me. They're not going to understand me. I'm going to back away from God. He's not going to get me. He's not going to understand me. He's holy. I mean, it's nice that Jesus is there, but he's God. And the whole point of, of this temptation and the whole book of Hebrews is trying to tell you Jesus is a man. And he's like you. And he's like me. And he's felt pain. And he's felt the temptation that you feel. He understands all of it. Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who's lofty and over us. It's the same Jesus who through his temptation said, I'm not going to hold on to my deity as though it's something to lord over people and beat them over the head with. To be a king, he's a servant king who never lords that over his people. And he comes in a priestly empathetic function. Hebrews says he can sympathize with you and your needs and your temptations and your hurts. And that's where he comes to meet you to make the sacrifice. Jesus didn't die on the cross knowing that one day you would be a better person. And you might very well be the kind of person he should die for. Jesus came to meet the human race where it was at in their humanity. And to know that brokenness and that hurt. That God is no longer unapproachable and vast and ungraspable and this holy thing that maybe if I white knuckle it hard enough, I can understand him. God emptied himself and boiled himself down to a human that we could grasp, that we could understand, that we could approach, that we could touch. And he went looking for people. He described himself as whenever there was a sheep that was lost, he would leave these over here to go find it and bring it back. He understands our impulse to hide and recoil away. And he comes to you under totally understanding you and brings you back to the fold. He doesn't leave you there. 
And he doesn't let you just sort of say, he doesn't just wag his finger at you and say, if you're good enough, find your way back. And then I guess you can stay. He says, the shepherd picks up the lamb and brings them home. Sometimes rougher if he needs to, because if it's a lamb that keeps wandering off, sometimes shepherds had to like their calves and say, all right, I'm going to carry you around. So you learn to trust me until you heal. So sometimes the coming back is a little bit more graceful than others. But the thing is that he just, he, he gets it. He doesn't want you to recoil, to hide, to wander off thinking maybe if I get this thing under wraps, maybe that thing I don't tell people about, uh, if I just kind of get it under control, then I can come back and then I'll tell everybody about it afterward. And then they can't really be mad at me or judge me afterward for failing all this time because it's not a problem anymore. I'll get it under wraps and then I'll tell everybody about it and then they'll forgive me and it'll be cool because it's, it's probably not going to happen. Maybe. And even if it does work, you're, you, there's a whole lot of pain along that road that you don't have to go through. Because it says here, the the last line I just read to you all, where it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another. And don't neglect meeting one another, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And the thing is, is that if you keep constantly running into, the, into temptation or into the same old temptation and it keeps breaking you down, so you keep falling back deeper and deeper and deeper and recoiling more and more and more, and you just keep closing yourself off little by little to everybody else around you, you're missing the whole point of coming here and being here. If you reveal that stuff to other people, it's embarrassing, it's painful, it's awful. But all at the same time, it's meant to be healing. Because we are all human. And in the same way we have a kingly high priest who understands us and our humanity, we're supposed to understand one another in each of our humanity. And it's our job, it's our duty to everybody else in this room to act in that healing, compassionate way, just as Jesus did to one another. And don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not just saying like, oh, hey, just because Jesus is human and he does always love you and nothing, no sin is ever going to be too big, that you can just kind of, kind of keep sweeping things under the rug or just kind of say, well, then just, I'm just going to do me and it's going to be cool because God's always going to love me whenever Jesus came to meet people and then he met their needs and then he heals them or he does whatever they need to be made right. The very next thing he always tells all of them is go and sin no more. And Paul says the very next, the same thing all throughout Romans in his books of just because, just because you have this high priest, that doesn't mean you're supposed to go on sinning. And the author of Hebrews says the same way. If we keep just living in this mess, there's no sacrifice left because the sacrifice has to be offered in a particular posture. So 
So I'm not just saying just do you and always be you because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be cool no matter what. Because Jesus, whenever he's tempted, he has a few things that help him. One, it's the fact that he very apparently very deeply knows the word. Because every time Satan tempts him, he doesn't just get in like a little ball and like just, eh, just white knuckle it, you know, and say, go away. He speaks the word of life into the temptation. And then after he has the word, the next thing that he does is he just literally just trusts God. Even in his solitude, he just trusts God. And part of that is because he knows he's not alone. It says the Spirit was there empowering him. And the Spirit, okay, so here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm, if you, anybody who knows me knows I love acts. And I love spirit stuff. And I will talk to you all day long about spirit stuff because that was probably like the biggest spiritual awakening in my life was whenever I actually like read the book of Acts and it was like, this is cool. Um, the spirit isn't just about to give you awesome Jesus superpowers. The spirit is so that you're never alone and you constantly have a tether back to the same very human high priest and king that knows you and understands you. But then we also have each other. And each one of us has that very same connection and tether to that high priest, that king. And then we all get connected to one another. And God is holy. And the best analogy is, is, uh, to holiness is the Bible project analogy of holiness, where it's like trying to go toward the sun. It's, it's, it's painful, but you, you, you need it. If the sun just goes, bad things happen. But the closer, the closer and the closer and the closer you get, the more it feels like it hurts. And there's like this really great version of, of that in one of the Narnia books. In the third one, Don Treader, one of the characters, gets turned into a dragon. He finally comes to the Jesus figure, Aslan, with his failures. And in order to get the scales off of him, to turn him back into a boy, Aslan doesn't just go, you're now a boy. He peels the scales off of him. And C.S. Lewis describes it as a painful process. But by the end, he's back to himself, the way he was always intended to be. And you don't get there by recoiling from God because he's big and he's high and he's holy and he's scary. You get there because God decided to come to you and tell you and assure you, I get it. And he's always gotten it all along. He's always all throughout the Old Testament been telling people, come to me and I will forgive you. Read Psalm 51. There's this very clear understanding of, I need God to forgive me. And I can do that by asking him. And he's sure to forgive. That's what David says. If I ask him, he will forgive. And yet we keep recoiling. So then finally God says, if you don't believe me, here. And he gave us Jesus. Okay. 
we have Christ, not just to cover our sin, but so that we always have a definitive, concrete picture of what God is like. That in the midst of everything, whenever God is too big, too high, too holy, too mysterious to comprehend, that we have a person that we can grab onto and say, I think he gets it because he's been there before. And whenever you want to hide away and, re and recoil away, don't. And when dealing with, with temptations, it's, it's frustrating. It's like, it's like grinding our teeth. It's because we usually run into the same frustrations and temptations and keep failing to them. Uh, that's our weakness. But if we genuinely, genuinely believe and trust that we're not alone, and when we're tempted, we don't shy away from Jesus, but rather lean into God and lean into the word and lean into one another, the spirit is there. And that's where the power is. That's where our hope is. So if you are here and either you keep running into the same old roadblocks of temptation and you keep failing, so you either recoil and back away from the body and you stop coming to church because things are hurtful or painful or potentially embarrassing, uh, now is the time to lean in. It's not going to get any better. I, I promise it's not going to get any better. And on the very slim chance that it does, there's going to be a whole lot more hurt that you don't have to deal with if you just lean in. If you're tempted to deviate because you don't know if his plan makes sense for you, that's the time to lean in. Or if at the very last you just, I don't know if he's going to protect me. I don't know if he's going to protect my loved ones. I don't know about all this. That's the time to lean in. And not just to God, but lean into one another. And that's hard. That's difficult and that's painful. Because I'm certain there's some there are people in here dealing with stuff, dealing with junk, either the same old junk or new junk. You just got over the last junk, so now you got new junk, and you don't want it out. And so you're probably going to keep hiding for a while longer yet. And we can't make you lean in. Hopefully the Spirit keeps nudging you until you finally lean in. And hopefully that's today. And if you're on the, the cusp of finally just leaning in, just, just do it. I don't know any other way, any other more elegant way to put it. Uh, if you're dealing with the temptation and you keep failing, lean in and let everybody know. Not everybody, you know, I'm not, we're not going to come up here and do a big struggle session. You know, if you've got something going on, we're not going to have you come up here and start like flagellating you and you just... You know, until you weep and oh, what was me? Just grab somebody and let them know. Because God understands you. 
and he's with you. And God is with us and understands us so we can understand each other and help one another heal and overcome. Because you very rarely overcome alone. We need one another to overcome. And if you keep running into the temptation, here's something that's going to blow your minds. But I promise it's in the Bible. Pray that you don't go toward those temptations. You can literally, Jesus, whenever he tells us how to pray, he literally just says, and pray that you won't be led into temptation and that you'll be delivered from evil. So if you're still trying to figure out how to white knuckle it and you're not leaning in and you're just backing off, and you're, but you're not quite there yet to, to totally let go and let somebody else know, uh, pray and see where that gets you. And if God even gives you these little moments of victory and delivers you from those temptations, then maybe see what it's like to open up and share with some other folks who can help you with those temptations. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And uh, I've already been told I can volunteer Adam and David to be up here in the front to receive anybody who might need to share anything or talk about something or uh, get something off your chest if you need to. Uh, But whenever you read about Jesus throughout the rest of the time that we're in the Gospels and the New Testament, I just want you to desperately try and see him for the man that he is. So that whenever he acts and that he behaves, he is not just this untangible, floaty, I am holy thing that you can't talk to or relate to or feel like you can come to in your time of help. That rather Jesus came to you in pain, in brokenness, so that you could be made new, so that he can show you he understands you, and it's okay to come to him. You don't have to have your temptations and your junk figured out to come to the high priest. You come to the high priest because you don't have your junk figured out, and then he can atone for you. So if you've got something you got to unload this morning, then come to the high priest. Don't wait. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to make yourself holy. You can't. The priest makes you holy. Come here in this moment as you are and let the priest lift the burden off of you. And let us help lift the burden off of you and just respond to God this morning. I want to pray for you all. God, I pray for your people this morning. If any of them are facing fear and temptation and doubt and sin, if they keep struggling with the same sins or new sins, that they could find you in your humanity, where you find us in our humanity. That we can come to you understanding you are a compassionate, sympathetic, empathetic high priest who wants us to come here now so you can transform us and make us holy. I pray that your spirit would move, move people just far enough that they can unburden themselves of their temptations this morning. 
And if they've already shared their temptations with others, I pray that your spirit would move and anoint them, that you would give them just enough grace, just enough mercy to be delivered from their temptations one day more, and then the next day, and then the next day. Ask all this in Jesus' name.